yeah, we got back Friday. And because uh, we thought we needed to be here on time for this. Are there any budding songwriters among you? No? There is, but they don't know. They won't admit it. Uh, is it possible to put that song up we had before? Yeah, just before. I'll stand with arms wide. Challenge for you all, because this happens to me every single time. It may not happen to you. Uh, this song ambushes me consistently. I'll be sitting there minding my own business, however the worship's going, and it, uh, it'll hit me. But the reason it hits me, funny enough, is not because of the way the words are written. As soon as that thing comes up, and I can feel myself getting emotional now, I think it should read something like this. He hung with arms wide and heart abandoned. And, and every time I get it, I just see that picture. It's, it was him who abandoned all. I see, I don't like shouting too much about what we think we've abandoned. Because <laughs> to be honest, we never really know. <laughs> but I do know this. He hung with, harm, with arms high and heart abandoned in love. For me, he gave it all. And if you want to finish it off, some songwriter, uh, I just think the tune's brilliant, it fits, but it needs to be about him <laughs> rather than what we do. Uh, and uh, so there's a challenge. You can, have, you can have both then, can't you? Anyway, let me pray uh, after that and we'll, uh, we'll continue on. Jesus, we love because you first loved us. We are not able to surrender all until you surrendered to us. And so I want to thank you that uh, it's not that we put you first, you are first. And so we want to respond to you with our ears wide to what you want to say and our hearts open to what you want to do in changing us. So bless us as your people, help us to receive from you. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In football cliches, they talk about a game of two halves. Uh, there are two different things I want to do. The first half is just going to be a testimony uh, about what our last year has been. Uh, it's not exactly a year, but it's, it's, it's roughly a year since... I first felt God say we needed to move to Africa. And so this is almost the first anniversary, so I want to talk a bit about that. And then in the second half, there are some, uh, some things from the scripture that I think God wants to say to you, and uh, hopefully that will, be, that will be helpful for you. If not, well, tough, eh? Before I start the bit of uh, testimony, I, I felt when I was, again, in the worship, I had a question for you all. Because it's interesting, I, there was words, wasn't there, about you're about to enter a land. Uh, and God's really sneaky with these things. He tells you it's a land full of milk and honey and all those sorts of, sorts of things. Uh, but of course, you're going to spend, well, certainly Israel spent quite a lot of the first few years just continually at war. So it sort of sneaks up on you, doesn't it? So you get this land of promise and then ouch. Uh, and God's been doing that to me all my life as far as I'm concerned. You're in a meeting and someone prophesies over you that you're this mighty man of God and you're going to change the world. You know, if you're, if you're smart, you should duck. But the trouble is, in our, in our young years, we don't. We just say, is everybody listening? <laughs> and how important I am. God's saying, I'm going to change the world. Uh, and then, as I said, then the ouch begins. And so my question actually is this, before I tell our story, you've been talking a lot about God saying to you about thankfulness, and that's absolutely correct. Be thankful in all circumstances, right? But is there anybody here, and don't be embarrassed to do this, but if there is anybody here who the last few years have been a complete breeze? You know, it's been nothing, but everything you touched turned to gold, and everything you tried to do flourished, and, wow, you cannot believe how fruitful and amazing these last couple of years have been. If you are that person or persons, please leave the room and go and pray for somewhere else. 
Because <laughs> I'm going to tell a story, but what normally happens is when God says Thanksgiving, it's normally, well, it's Thanksgiving in the midst of a lot of stuff that doesn't appear to be thanks, what you want to give thanks for. I was thinking the other day is, unfortunately, in our Western world, we often think the gospel talks about freedom from suffering rather than a freedom in suffering. Uh, victory without a fight rather than, you know, in this world you will have trouble. That's what Jesus said, wasn't it? But fear not, I've um, overcome the world. And unless we can get real about that, we're going to struggle in this try to enter the land. You do not start to enter the land of the enemy without getting hurt. It's a fight. And all sorts of stuff will be thrown at you. And I'm not saying this to be miserable, but I just say if we recognize that in reality, then we can truly be thankful in all circumstances. When the Apostle Paul says rejoice, and I say it again, rejoice, he was actually talking in the midst of being in prison, having been beaten I don't know how many times, having been shipwrecked, but he's still saying rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Because our joy is in him, isn't it? And so that is continual. And there is always something to be thankful and praiseworthy for. And so as you enter into your promised land, let's just let me just tell you a bit about what's been ha happening with us. Uh, a year ago, about, I was on my way back from South Africa again. And it was one of those normal trips. It had been good, it seemed. I think God had blessed it. Uh, on the plane, as I got on the plane in Johannesburg, uh, I had no idea what was about to go on then. Because in the next 12 hours, I thought, God, it was like he had a face-to-face -face conversation with me and explained to me strategically, spiritually, every which way, why I should, we as a whole family should relocate to Africa. This is quite embarrassing, really. We've just had a team retreat. I didn't mention anything like that. And now, by the time I get to London, I'm going to ring him up and say, by the way... I think we're supposed to move to Africa. So I don't know, it's not a minor thing to you, but I thought that was going to be slightly embarrassing. But anyhow, I get off a plane in England, get in the car, drive, and the first person in our family I meet is Elspeth, who says to me, Dad, it's good to see you, but I've had this real feeling from yesterday. I know it seems a strange thing to say to you, you've just got back from South Africa, but we're supposed to move to Africa. <laughs> okay. And then... One after another, things like that came on board to point this way that we're supposed to move uh, in, into Africa. Now, when you get those words, they're usually accompanied with all sorts of great promises about how God will change Africa and the world. Uh, now, actually, I, I believe those things, but uh, it's been an interesting year, shall we say, since. <laughs> we started moving on that uh, premise and we were busy working in Bath at the time. And what seemed strange about being called to Africa is, the, is that things in Bath seemed to be going quite well. And so it seemed like we were being taken out in the middle of something. And I know some of you may laugh at this, but when we said the word to the people in Bath that we feel called to Africa, there was rejoicing. <laughs> now, well, there was rejoicing that I was going. Anyway, I, but... Uh, uh, but it was more than rejoicing. When I announced it, the Holy Spirit came on the meeting of leaders we were in, and an incredible things started happening. It was like me just announcing it caused all sorts of things to break loose in their own visions and dreams. And so it, it looked like it was being affirmed. So, so far, so good. The scripture talks about the word of God being like honey in the mouth and bitter in the stomach. So far, this is the honey in the mouth bit. Everybody's agreed that this is, it seems to be the Word of God. And then I met my friend Ian, who is an uh, outstanding prophet of God. Uh, and uh, he says to me, I had a dream about you yesterday, and I've got a word for you. And he said, the word is this. The UK and Europe is center stage for you. And I thought, oh, no. Everybody else said this, and now Ian's going to say this, isn't he? And he said, but you're not supposed to live on the stage. God says, leave. It's time for you to move to Africa, and he will call you onto the stage 
of the UK and Europe at the appropriate moment. Okay, so, so far, so good. Again, uh, that, uh, it seems like God's on this thing. Uh, and all sorts of uh, uh, blessing is happening with that. Then we're about to, uh, I'm trying to think of this in chronological order. I'm going to miss out some bits, but uh, I'm thinking we're, we're trying to get on with this whole process. When I'm in a meeting with some of the leaders from Bath, and they said, I know you think you're moving fast, but God says it's time to move right now. And I thought, I don't know how we're supposed to do that. And one of the guys there had this prophetic word where he said many years ago, he'd been on this, he'd left his car, he'd been on a long walk, and he ended up 20 meters from his car. But the trouble is there was a ravine in the middle. Uh, not a big one, it's only about six foot. You thought he should be able to jump it. But there's one thing having that in your head, the other thing doing it. And so he said he did the most strange thing. He felt prompted by God to get his car keys, his wallet, put them in his rucksack, and he threw them across the ravine. So now all of that's on the other side where his car is, and he's on this side. And he felt he had to do that because now he jumped it. Like there was no choice. He has to get across. And he says, God's calling you to throw your keys, whatever that means, into Africa, so you have to do it. We felt at the time, okay, they, uh, there were certain words about maybe it's the children, who are, I know are no longer children, uh, to throw the children into Africa. <laughs> it's our youngest, we've got four, our youngest is 18 in April. We've considered every now and again, when he turns 18, Jenny and I move somewhere, and we just don't tell him where. Legally, we're innocent from then on, right? You know, that seems to be the thing to do. But anyhow, only joking. We love you. So were we supposed to send the kids across so we had to go? Didn't know. But what I did was, uh, the only thing I could do, we went back to the place we were renting, and basically I told the landlord, right, we were leaving. Uh, Because, you know, well, God's called us on. So, council electricity, the gas, everything else, and we were set to leave in uh, a few weeks' time. As you can imagine, Jenny is thrilled with this process. Uh, she's very supportive. Uh, uh, all our married life, she'd be very supportive, but she's had a lot to be supportive of, I can tell you. But this is one of these things. So, we're, we're going we're gonna to move out, and we've got all sorts of other things uh, going on uh, as well. We, therefore, are about to enter a stage where we have nowhere here and nowhere there and no money either. Now, you know, but God said. You know what, just a little side, aside here, what I find fascinating about this? When I went back into the Bath leaders meeting, there were leaders from across the town, I said, well, you guys said, move now. You felt that was the word of God. So, that's exactly what we've done. Everything's going to go to storage, We've, we've closed everything down. We're about to go. They said, you're mad. What do you do that for? <laughs> Seriously, they didn't have, well, you said it was the word of God. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, I just mentioned that's the reality you often face. People are very, it's very easy, isn't it, like I said, to prophesy stuff. It's always so easy to, what does that look like in, in real terms? Uh, it was a fun move in terms of the few days that we took to move the van into, to take our stuff into a warehouse, absolutely bucketed down with rain. And then we had some visitors from South Africa come as well who we had to give hospitality to. It was a very interesting juggling experiment. Uh, and we have been without uh, our own dwelling since July the 31st of last year, uh, living out of suitcases since then. But that's, that, by the way, is all the easy part. In the meantime... We're watching as our children also go through all sorts of stresses and strains. One of our daughters has seen about, I think it's a, roughly about five of her friends had died in the previous two years, which is a bit much for anybody to cope with. Uh, and so it's taken on huge emotional stress. And each of them has a, a change of life. So you're trying to juggle your kids at this end. God's telling you to go here. Will I destroy my wife in the process? I hope not, but, you know, uh, am I nuts? All this, all this sort of stuff. Uh, we went to South Africa, and it seemed like the, the start of it was pretty good. Avenues opened up, and uh, money started coming in, or 
the promise of money started coming in. So they thought, well, this is good. Income streams are coming in. We'll be able to rent somewhere and sort something out. Uh, so we came back from the Africa trip, and things seemed, oh, well, it started to look up. Within three weeks, uh, the sheer emotional crush, her, one of our daughters was out in Africa, had taken its toll on her, and she was having a bit of a breakdown, but she's in Africa, and we're back here now. And then all the promises of income, one after another, just went, went for all sorts of reasons. One company went bust. And so just one after another, all the supports were taken away. And then in the meantime, we were back in Bath, and I'd been asked, could I bring this uh, leaders gathering together? Because nobody else had the favor of all the different factions in Bath, it seemed. You're the only one who can put them together. So we have this meeting where everybody's supposed to come together and talk about their heart for unity and one another. And the one thing I was asked to do, above all else, can you make sure, they said, we don't want to pretend. What we really, really want is authenticity. So I said, <laughs> I said I'm very, very happy to do authenticity. Uh, and so I will MC the meeting and we'll do this, uh, we'll have this time together. And I actually got some people from across the town to talk about how they really felt. And I explained this is what's going to happen. We're talking about unity, but this is how far we are from it. The Bible talks about this, doesn't it? It says, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, then believed God. I'm not talking about being negative. I'm just saying it's not faith unless you're facing the facts and have faith. If you don't face the facts, however bad they are, then it's just wishful thinking, isn't it? So you have to face the facts about how bad it is. And certainly there was all sorts of infighting in Bath before we can have faith for God to bring unity. Anywho, we were partway through this meeting when various folks shared, and I thought it was going uh, reasonably well, which just shows how my discernment is, uh, when basically all hell broke loose, because actually what it seemed was the last thing people wanted was, was authenticity. It was, you can't say that. This was all the stuff that was going on as we found it. Going on, and all sorts of infighting broke out. Uh, it's Bath. If it had been the East End of London, it wouldn't have been infighting. It would have probably been outfighting as well. <laughs> but it's Bath. They just do infighting. Uh, but it's mean. Anyway. And so all this stuff broke out. And guess whose fault it was? <laughs> of course. It's, it's, it's actually my fault that all this has happened. And uh, so for about a month after that, we were persona non grata across the city. Like somehow we have ruined the city unity. Well, there you go. Uh, my wife reminds me that one of the things that really shocked her was going into a meeting with some young people where some of the older folks said to them, what is this about you guys having clandestine coffee meetings? We thought, that's interesting. How is it possible to have a clandestine coffee meeting? Guess what? What they're saying is in Bath, you're supposed to inform the leaders if you want to have coffee with somebody. Well, there you go. But it, 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 was just, it was just fascinating, all the stuff that broke loose. So basically what we're now faced with is everything's falling apart in Africa where we're supposed to go, and everything where we presently are in Bath is most people want to kill us. So, I mean, you know, it's... <laughs> so basically it's a normal day in the Sanders household. You know, it's, it's, it's the sort of stuff because... <laughs> And I know you know what I'm talking about, because even when I came up here, John's in agony, can't move, and all sorts of things are happening with him. I mean, right across the board, these sorts of things are happening. And the only reason I guess I'm telling you this story is I'm not wanting you to feel sorry for us or anything else. I'm just saying that when God says, go and conquer the land and go to war, do not be surprised when hand grenades go off and you've got fire shells around you. It's incredibly noisy. And it seems like people don't like you. You know, this, this is part of the deal, isn't it? And I think one of our problems as we seek to bring change to our nation or nations is we just don't get this. I mean, it's, it's not like Jesus didn't tell us this. You know, that actually it would be like this. If they hated me, they'll hate you. That's it. So, so it's all right to say, right, take the land. Well, okay then, 
you will be hated. And it's very much a matter of, therefore, keeping focus in the midst of all this. One of the things I kept on doing in the midst of that bath thing was saying, I'm going to hang on to what God's told me about other people. I'm going to hang on to what he's told me about us and what God has called us to do. Because in the midst of it all, people kept on encouraging me to defend ourselves. And also to name names of the various culprits out there. One of the things I steadfastly refused to do, because actually I felt God had said to me, you believe this about such such a person, you just continually announce what you believe in faith for them, even if they're not speaking well of you. Now the good news is in the long run, I think we're starting to see some reality creep in to Bath. Uh, but that reality that's creeping, we, we hope it lasts. <laughs> but it's amazing how quickly we can want to go back to the status quo. And so, as I said, in the midst of all this, we've got all things shifting. We've got finances falling apart. We've got people we love dying around us. Uh, and uh, everybody hates us and thinks we don't eat worms or something like, something like that, isn't it? You have to, maybe you have to be a bit older to remember that song from school, the school bus, but there we go. Uh, but I do believe God is still on the move. And actually what's happened with that bar thing, it has broken loose now, and all sorts of new ventures are starting to emerge and be birthed. Because I think what it did, it started to expose what was really there. And not just for me, I knew it was already there. I, 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 that makes me even more stupid, doesn't it, really, if you think about it. <laughs> I knew that if we were authentic, dear me, it wasn't going to be pleasant. But actually, it was just exposed to everybody else. And all sorts of things God has started to do there. So that is quite exciting. Although, as we head back towards Bath, I, I am no longer uh, something naive about it. It's going to be a bit of a war zone, I think, if we're going to see real progress made. Meanwhile, we then finished that. We've got to go back to South Africa. Because this is what we felt God had told us to do. So we, we've now just come back from our second trip to South Africa. Uh, where, uh, far from a warm welcome, uh, this time for some reason, all the people we were expecting a warm welcome from uh, seemed to be absolutely petrified that we were coming. And when I say we were coming, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it's, uh, I seem to have this effect on things. It's, it's very noble of you to even ask me into your building, really, for the amount of trouble it causes, but anyhow. Because uh, they started thinking, well, comes if the stuff in Bath starts to happen here, will we cope? And so we end up, we arrived there, and far from getting a great welcome there, it was, it was like everyone was pushing us away. So this is great. They don't want us in Bath. They don't want us in South Africa. Uh, where do we go? Who deserves to suffer? You know, we, <laughs> we'll, we'll come back and join you in the East End. No, no. no. <laughs> and uh, we've had a very interesting trip this, this uh, uh, last, last few months there. One of the things that uh, God said to me, and I'm coming to an end of this bit, I'm, I just uh, thought you'd be interested in the journey, at least those of, those of you that know us, and it does have some salient points for us. God said, Bernard, you are always going to be out of time with the people you are trying to speak to. I thought, oh, rat. That's a terrible thing to say, really, isn't it? But I felt it was God said to me. He said, you have been, for the last 20 years, you've been trying to tell people that are institutional, organizational, in their method of faith, that actually it's relational, it's family. And so you've been out of step. Now, and I'm telling this to you, so it's time for war. I don't just believe that for us. I, I'm just, I believe that's a prophetic thing. It's time for war. It's time for sons to become soldiers. It doesn't mean we forget what we've learned about being family, if we've ever learned it. You still have to learn that lesson. We don't bin that to do this, but it's time for war. And I think God is, is shifting everything. And so the family you have built there in, in some parts of South Africa, they're a bit freaked out by this because I think they can sense that spirit. You Previously you've come as a father, now you're coming as a general. Saying, actually, it's time to stop messing around here. It's time to go to war on uh, some of the things that God's calling us to go to war on. 
My eldest daughter had a word for me last January. This is a minor film review, by the way. You can get it on YouTube. It's a film that's not out yet. But she said to me, Dad, I've got a word for you. God has called you to be like Noah. And uh, I said, what do you mean? She says, it's not just that what you're going to speak is going to be outrageous or different or people will struggle with, but it's so out there, they won't even have a reference point for it. See, when Noah started saying it's going to rain for 40 days, it's going to be a flood. Remember, there's no such thing as rain. So he's actually having, he's t- having to talk about things there is no reference point for. And then another prophet from California came along and said the same thing. He's going to be like Noah. So when another one of my daughters, the film's coming out in March, you know. Hollywood had been a, a blockbuster about Noah. Russell Crowe is Noah. You can see the, uh, as I said, you can see the advertisements on, on YouTube. Uh, it was a very emotional thing for me. Especially, there's one moment when he's faced with all the odds, all the problems faced against him, all the people surrounding him. I said, Noah, how can you stand there? You, do you not realize you are alone? And I, I mean, he just said his simple words back. He just said, I am not alone. But meaning, of course, God was with him. It's just the way he said it in there. Boom. Very emotional moment. March 28th, coming out. I hope they don't ruin it. But it could be a very prophetic film for our, for our age. And some of the things I think God is calling us into, I do think, but I don't want to, I don't want to get sidetracked on this right now, but we do need to learn what preaching Christ and Him crucified looks in the world of work, government, and you know, uh, social care, in all of these things. What does it look like? Because what I keep on seeing happening is either we end up so, uh, if you like, building bridges with the world, that we lose the king in trying to bring the kingdom. Or we're so sort of straight-lined evangelical that nobody can understand what we're talking about. And I think there is a new thing out there where we learn to preach Christ but in a way that actually he can be heard. Because his kingdom rule is meant to come in every area of society, isn't it? That's one of the major reasons I think God has called us there because I've nearly finished this bit of the testimony. I'm only telling you this to say you're right about it being a promised land. But you also need to remember it's going to be a fight. And actually, the thanksgiving needs to take place in the midst of strife. The victory will take place in the midst of trouble. Freedom will be in the midst of suffering, not without any of those things. Important to remember that. But God called you. He said, this is a land I have given you. So it's not like it's up for grabs, will we make it? No, no, it's being given to you. You will make it, but that's how you'll make it. When I say these things, the danger is you think, well, we've lost heart for England and Europe. It's not true. I feel one of the reasons, though, God calls to Africa is that there's a big emphasis these days uh, on the whole economic world. The world is an economic crisis. A prophetic friend of mine said, Power, which everybody wants, has a different currency in every different age. There was a time when power was military across the world. There's been times when power has been political. We are living in a day and age when power is economic. It's still true. Militarily, America has 25 times the power in its military that China does. But it doesn't matter one jot, does it? That's not where the power lies anymore. The power lies in the economy. And there's a reason why Jesus said you can't serve God and mammon. I don't think it was just a for instance. This is where the battle lines will be drawn. And so how do we affect the world of work, finance, uh, money? It's going to be where God calls us. I know I see all sorts of things in films that other people don't see. Most people have been very disappointed with the Hobbit films, you know, after seeing Lord of the Rings. Uh, I still prefer Lord of the Rings, but the Hobbit things to me have been very prophetic. I actually believe this is a time for God's people to reclaim their inheritance of provision. If you don't know the film, basically, these group of dwarves have to go back and claim the mountain of their inheritance, which is a mountain of gold. It's where the provision lies. But you know where the, who also lives <laughs> in the place of provision? That's where the dragon lives. I believe it's time to wrest back business, commerce, 
wealth creation, because remember, God has given us the power to make wealth. That's what he told the people of God. It's promised in Deuteronomy. To wrest it back from the evil one. But you are absolutely, if you're going to do that, going to find yourself in the dragon's lair. And so it's going to be an interesting battle. So why Africa? Because I genuinely believe this too. Many years ago, we were at a meeting where an Irish lady prophesied, Africa is the begging bowl of the world, but God is going to turn it into the golden platter. It's where people expect to have to give, but it's going to become the place where people will receive from. And I believe there's a moment for Africa right now where it's supposed to turn, and Africans are going to be, have to help to solve African problems, which is why we go there, I think, to help equip them for that. But not only that, Africa is going to be a supplier and a provider for the world, rather than, as I said, a begging bowl. That's going to take a big turnaround, isn't it? We went there this time, and 90% of the business people I talked to seemed to be talking about leaving Africa. I said, don't do it. This is where victory for the world economically is going to come from, I believe. Now you can say, you're nuts. Well, fair enough. That's what I believe God's saying. One of the reasons I believe it is that actually God created South Africa in particular, but up into Africa, there is an entrepreneurial spirit there. It's like it's part of their birthright. And the thing I find in Africa is people are looking for solutions to the crisis we find ourselves in, whereas actually here in Europe, we're still trying to grab hold of past glories. And actually, the whole economic situation, we need new ways of banking. We need new ways of doing insurance and trade and all those sorts of things. And in England and Europe, we're not even looking for them. We're trying to get back to where we were. Whereas in Africa, I think there are places where we'll find those. In the midst of trouble, I, I agree, but we will find them. And so, we found this time God said, don't go to your family, I will show you men of peace. It was a painful process. We found that God started providing people for us, so we hadn't met before. And to cut a long story short, uh, I just want to get to this, this bit. God provided men of peace. The, uh, there was a lawyer in Johannesburg who I met with, he went away, he prayed, he came back, he said, God's told me to provide everything you need as you come to this city. He said, so my law firm will sort out your visas, and we're going to put you on retainer, and we're going to give you a credit card to pay all your expenses when you're here. Boom, like that. And he's teamed up with some other folks. They said, also, he said, the reason I know it's God was last year God told me someone was coming, it's going to be important for this continent, and basically I want you to clear your desk. So close down your law firm and get ready to start a new business. So together we started something that's going to be called Reservoir Investments. Uh, looking and putting into lots of entrepreneurial projects. I then had a, a call from my friend in Switzerland. A Chinese company, Swiss-German there, has been part of this Chinese company. Just said, I mean this is not a done deal yet, but this is the sort of thing that's starting to happen now. Uh, I don't know where it's going to lead. Just said, they've decided to invest five billion into Kenya to raise up 50,000 young entrepreneurs. Things just started to roll and started to move. And so as we come back this time, we're starting to see the things are a lot more positive. But I just wanted to share the story with you because I think we're going to have these two things. Continue there. We're fighting for it all the time. And uh, to expect that, but to keep on believing God. Face the facts, believe God. Face the facts, believe God. God intends that we should conquer and, uh, you know, we're, we're still in the midst of that story. Uh, just as we left, uh, we found a flat we could live in there in Cape Town. And uh, the money was provided to, to pay for it as well. So, depending on who you are, of course, you're welcome in Cape Town. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> it looks like we're, we're heading towards having, having a base there. And uh, so things are starting to move in the right direction. But that's... that's uh, our, our story, and, it, and it's still in the midst of all sorts of battles. Uh, so keep on praying for us. I know you have prayed for John and Jamie as they go. And this is the last thing I'll say on this before I get to the word I've got for the church, which I believe will be brief. Uh, I think one of the things that God's convicted me most in about this, it, well, I guess there's, there's two things, but that one is I'm dumb. He tells me he's going to bring trouble, and I, I, I always surprised when it comes, which I've just been talking about. But the other is, I often think I think it is too small. I know this time, in hindsight, the reason it was difficult when we first arrived in Cape Town is we were thinking about, we'll start in this city and then go to that city. 
And actually, what we've ended up with already, it looks like, is a plan that covers the whole of Southern Africa uh, in its impact already, what started to kick off. And as you guys, I would say this, as you guys go to Zimbabwe, I think we, we need to start thinking now, nation-changing. I remember John saying to me years ago, stuck with me, at some point, the despot who leads Zimbabwe will disappear. There'll be some sort of vacuum, normally filled by another despot. But actually, as I've heard preached from the front here by John, it's time to position yourselves to change nations. Time to position yourselves to bring in godly government. Just unlike me, don't be naive about it. <laughs> but that's where you to position yourselves. Anyway, that's a bit of the story. All sorts of other things happen. There's, there's a global picture, prophetic picture God gave us, but I can't show it now. Maybe some other time. I'd love to show you what, what I think's happening there. But I want to bring the word that I felt God say just for you guys in particular. Uh, Luke 1. The verse you well know. Gabriel is saying Zechariah about John the Baptist, the son he's about to have, and he's to prepare the way for the Lord. And I felt this was appropriate. I know many prophetic teachers have said this, that uh, like the first coming, the second coming, we'll have an Elijah people. Whether that's absolutely true or not, I do know this. I felt God say to me, say, you need to be prepared, positioned, and poised for what God's about to do. I'll say that again. Prepared, positioned, and poised for what God is about to do. There is no doubt whatsoever that we are in major shake-up times. I said to you last time I was here, it's often misread. In Matthew 24, it says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. Most people read that and assume it's just about the second coming. I'm sure it will be about that, but Old Testament prophecy will tell you this. Every time God says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, it's about the shake-up of nations and the moving of kingdoms. Therefore, I am absolutely convinced we, you, are living right now in a time when the Son of Man is coming on the clouds with power and great glory. The whole earth is shifting. In its, I remember being uh, somewhere where the newscast came on and they gave 30 seconds to the fact that China had just elected a new leader and then half an hour to the fact that Obama was going for re-election. I just thought, we still haven't woken up, have we? The 30 seconds was important. The half an hour was almost irrelevant. There is a changing season that is happening and we are in the midst of it. How do we get ready for it? How do we prepare for it? And how do we become more than conquerors in the midst of it? Well, it says this. In verse 17... This, 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 this is a one person, but I'm talking about a whole people now. They will go on, I'm translating, before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. If God is coming, how do we prepare the way for him? How do we position ourselves? How, do we, how are we poised? In the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Hearts of fathers to children. The devil is a counterfeiter, isn't he? He's never created anything. And that means one of the mistakes we often make is truth and error, we feel they're like this. But actually, truth and error are like this. They're next to each other, always. Because the devil counterfeits what God is doing. And so you'll never see a counterfeit nine-pound note, will you? Because that'd be ridiculous. No, no, a counterfeit will look like the real thing. You'll think you can use it, but actually it's not, it's not worth anything. What I've noticed with every single move of God, and this is why this is important for you, it's like the devil immediately throws in loads of counterfeits to ruin the currency. So when God starts emphasizing shepherding and discipling, we get the heavy shepherding movement. Boom, let's ruin this currency. When God starts raising up, raising up prophets, he throws in lots of weird prophets, just again to ruin the currency. When God starts raising up and saying, listen, I'm going to bring up an apostolic generation, which you are, by the way. This is a generation that is meant to be sent. This is a generation that is meant to rule. What happens is we get all sorts of wrong views of what the apostolic is. Well, do you know the latest, greatest, it seems to be counterfeit, is the big thing right now is the Father heart of God. 
Now, do I believe in the Father heart of God? Of course I do. It is an absolutely essential truth that we grasp hold of. God's passion for us. My eldest daughter, we were talking once, she's a social worker, and she was saying about a certain group of people, uh, I've never met one of those people without them having daddy issues. And then she stopped and she said, actually, it's not true. I've never met any human being who doesn't have daddy issues. The Father is the root of the whole universe. Therefore, actually, every single issue that anybody faces at any time, at some point, has its root in not being rightly linked to the Father, his heart, his love, and his grace for us. Right? That's where the root of it all comes. So do we need the Father heart of God message? We do. But what do we get? What I've, what I've seen, it's been replaced by, I think, I don't know how you put it, just a sort of a, God, God is nice type of message. <laughs> and whatever you want to do is fine. They never met my dad, that's for certain. <laughs> and I say that, my dad was killed when I was 17. And honestly, obviously now it's 35 years later, uh, we'll start talking about it, I'll weep. Because I, was, I passionately loved my dad, and I know he passionately loved me. But do you know what? I, he was not nice. I respected him. I loved him. He was amazing. But nice is not what I would have said about my dad. My favorite teacher at school who, who did more than anything to change my life. Again, not nice, but loving. And you've all heard the, the favorite one from Narnia, isn't it? Aslan's a lion. Represents Jesus. And someone says, so is he a safe lion? No, no, he's a lion. He's not safe, but he is good. God's fatherhood is good. It is loving. It's not always nice. Wait till you get on the wrong side of a good father. Nice is not what you'll experience. Loving is what you'll experience. And my concern is, and this is my word for you, we need to capture the genuine heart of the Father. We need fathers among you to start behaving like fathers. But it is not a goodwill attitude just that we're looking for. The power of positive thinking. It is actual fathering that needs to take place. I don't want to get sidetracked onto this, but I, I think I may have said this before here. It's like another thing that God is highlighting right now is the concept of honor. And yet I look around and I think most people haven't the first clue about honor because what we've imbibed into the church is what I call Christian political correctness. In other words, you say nice things about people and say you're honoring them. No, no. That is, as I said, that's political correctness. Real honor is when you give the weight to someone that God gives to them. You give the importance. So anyway, that's, that's another side. So I wouldn't get sidetracked. Let's stick with the father thing. I'll, rush, I'll, I'll go straight through it, what I think God... What, what is the heart of the Father? What does God want to, want to do? One of the first things about this then is fathers. How do you know you've got fathers in the house? Well, I'll tell you this. Because God says from creation, we reproduce after our own kind, if you're a father, the fruit of your fatherhood is more fathers. Sometimes people don't even get this about parenting. Parents actually aren't caused to raise children. They're called to raise the next parents. We have a saying amongst our teens. You don't actually know how well you've done as a parent until you see your grandchildren. Fathers will raise up more fathers. Mothers in Israel will raise up more mothers. Some of the places I've been, we see the Father Heart of God message being preached, but all that's left behind is people that feel like they've been patted on the head and told, you know, we like you. No, the actual fruit, as I said, is more fathers. Fathers bring security and affirmation. The father says of his son, you are my beloved son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So there is that part of it where there is affirmation, but there's more to it than that, isn't it? Fathers bring identity. We've got lots of young men and women growing up here. Do you yet know who you are? This is really important. I think the devil has two ways of going. He can get us to stop believing in God, 
which historically has been a lousy strategy. Because every time he's caused there to be an atheistic nation, what has it done? The atheistic nations of this world have birthed the fastest growing churches in the history of the world. So trying to stop people believing God was rubbish. So the devil's next strategy is simple. It's much easier to get them to stop believing in you. And I'm not talking about believing in yourself, X factor believing in yourself. You know, I want it, I deserve it, therefore I should have it. That's not what I'm talking about. God knew you before the foundation of the world. You were created with purpose, with destiny, and everything you need to fulfill the destiny God has called you for, he has and will give you. I am who I am by the grace of God. God wants you to know for absolute sure who you are. Because I'm telling you this, most infighting, most church splits, the reason we had a problem with authenticity in Bath is this. It's people generally live insecure. They're worried what people think of them. They're worried what people say about them. And it means they can't actually have mighty people around them. King David had many mighty warriors because he knew. I am king because God made me king. It doesn't matter if you're Superman. You can't affect my kingship because God gave it to me. Do you know who you are in God? And I'm saying to you, and it's not always older, older men. Anybody who's got responsibility for young men and women, part of your responsibility is to confirm, recognize, prophesy their identity into them. That they know they are who they are by the grace of God and are not blown about every which way by the nonsense that is out there. So fathers confirm identity. Jesus says to Peter, you're, you know, Simon, your name will be Peter. He confirms identity. It's one of those things sometimes we find difficult to do, but I find myself doing it more and more these days. Young men and young women, this is what I see in you. When's the last time someone did that for you? It's absolutely, this is what I see in you. This is what God is doing in you. I challenge you, fathers, speak in to the men and women of this fellowship. Speak in what God has said about them. Bring identity because it brings security. Not just identity, but fathers bring purpose, the why. Jesus called these fishermen and said, actually, that's not your job. I've called you to be apostles. I've called you to be fishers of men. He brought them into their purpose as well. Fathers call people into their purpose. It's interesting, apostolically, I think there are two different things we play. Paul says, or the team say to the Thessalonians, we were, like a, we were like a mother among you and we were like a father. Why is that? You know what everybody needs to know? They need to know they are unconditionally loved. It's like, that's what a mother does when a child is, is born in the early years. Unconditionally loved. Then the father at some point takes the role of saying, so what are you going to do when you grow up? <laughs> and starts to help lead in purpose. And I believe that fathering helps people to find their destiny and their purpose. And one of the things... When I say that, by the way, I don't want to make a mistake of putting you all in prison. And what I mean by that is, job-wise, very few people know what they want to do by the time they're 18 or 21, when you're always supposed to know. My experience has been, there are, I meet most people who are 50 and still don't know what they're supposed to be doing with their life. So this is not what I'm talking about. I mean, actually, I don't really think God cares. He does say it's important that you work. If you don't work, you won't eat. But what he does care about is the you that he created is enabled to be the you that he created and so affect the people around you in whatever sphere of work. So don't feel you've got to be... As a matter of fact, it's going to be more like pilgrimage, and that's happening in our society these days. Most of the jobs you'll do are like a tent on the way. And you don't need to be afraid that the next job you do, that's the house you're going to live in for the rest of your life. Probably not. It's a tent on the way to what God wants to call you to do. But what fathers need to do is keep you focused on what you're here for. And God has made you to be salt and light, to be world changers. Keep focused on that. And the how. Fathers bring discipline. 
I can't believe this, but for one of the main leaders I know, I don't even tell you where they're, where they, they're from, although I guess there's been lots of clues in this thing, but anyway, uh, said, I cannot believe that a loving father would discipline his children. And I thought, you never read Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 said, if you're not disciplined by God, you're a bastard. Sorry, I'm just saying that to wake you up. But that's what it says. If God does not discipline you, you are a bastard, not a child of his. Part of the the real father heart of God is you know when someone loves you, it says, when they're prepared to rebuke you for the sake of your life, destiny, call, and identity. Not that he's a great example of this, but the, the one good thing we can say for Simon Cowell, isn't it, is that actually when people come in there and say, I should have it because I want it, it's good to have someone at last say, well, actually, do you know what? You're crap. <laughs> not by your identity, but at this that you're trying to do. No, it's not going to happen. But that's not the way it's intended to be. It shouldn't be some stranger telling you that you're rubbish at something. The, father, the true father heart will guide, will discipline, will rebuke, will correct, will affirm, will love to enable you to become who you're supposed to be. And boy, do we need fathers. Jenny saw a poster somewhere uh, which had someone holding up a finger and said, everyone needs someone to call them on their crap. Uh, And uh, we rather like that in our family, but that's because we're peasants like that. But anyway, and my daughter said to me, she said, The great thing about you, Dad, is when things, people don't do what they said God told them to do, you just, you don't let it pass. What I'm trying to tell you is that should not be abnormal. If you told me God said something to you, then I will ask you what happened. (laughs) And you're not accountable to me, but you certainly are accountable to God. Part of fathering is holding you to these things. Because all sorts of nonsense gets spoken in church meetings that never gets followed through, doesn't it? Anyway, I'm going to move that one. So that's the, the father heart of God, D- discipline. Security, identity, purpose, discipline. The second thing about this, which is the last point, because that's the heart of the father, it says, the children and, and to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. You know, I said about how the father thing is becoming a fad and we're going to miss the genuine heart of God. The other thing that's becoming a fad and we'll miss is the teaching on grace. Mamma mia. Out there, there's all sorts of television preachers and everything supposedly teaching on grace. God loves you, doesn't care what you do. Well, it's true that God loves you, but he really cares what you do and who you are. But I'm going to make it simple for you rather than dissecting various TV preachers. Is this. Through the law came, you know, Moses gave the law. Jesus gave grace and truth. John's Gospel, chapter 1. It ain't grace if it doesn't lead to truth. I'll say that again. It is not grace if it doesn't birth truth. What is truth? That the word becomes flesh. Right? It is not grace that says, God said this, you did something else, never mind, God is gracious. That is rubbish. Grace empowers you to become what he's spoken into being that you should be. Grace births the word becoming flesh. We're going to have to fight for that, folks, because there is so much nonsense out there on this. Grace births truth which leads to obedience, of course. Jesus, our example, was obedient even unto death. You've got to understand, that's not legalism. The issue, right, illegalism, is where your obedience comes from. God will have obedient children. As a matter of fact, he says elders who cannot manage their family well, whose children are disobedient, should not be elders. So God, of course, must have obedient children. If you're not obedient to him, then actually, maybe you're not his child. Because he will discipline you and bring you into obedience. But where does it come from? Grace tells us it comes from his unconditional love 
and it's a provision for us. Legalism, it says, it comes out of a fear of punishment. So we're not talking about the end result, we're talking about the roots, aren't we? Anyway, I'll move on. I was staggered to uh, read this, but it just reminded me of how I got into trouble in Zimbabwe uh, one time. It's not that I've only got into trouble in Zimbabwe one time, I've got into trouble lots of times, but there was one time in particular I remembered. Uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 2. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. And it's like I read that for the first time just recently. This is not just a quote from your mouth. I believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. It's not saying that. It's saying the spirit that motivates you, if it acknowledges or affirms i.e., Jesus come in the flesh, which I said is not a proclamation, i.e., it results in Jesus being fleshed out in your life, it's from God. You understand what I'm saying? The spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In other words, if it's the real spirit of God, it produces Jesus in you. Jesus comes in the flesh. The spirit of Antichrist, right, does not acknowledge or does not make Jesus come in the flesh. It makes Jesus just a knowledge or a belief or, a, in other words, not from God. So the, spirit of, so the spirit of Christ makes you become like Christ. The spirit of Antichrist, you don't become like Christ. It's not what you profess, it's what you become. As we behold him, we become like him. If you're not becoming more and more like him, I, what are you looking at? Anyway, nearly done. But it's very important we get hold of this. The disobedient. We are living in days of massive disobedience. And understandably so, because there's been so many abuses of authority. And so it seems like, you know, authority has gone out the window. And all in the name of freedom. I want to say this. Jesus was given all authority, right? And what's the fruit of all authority? If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. If you want to understand what true freedom is, we're going to have to learn how to deal with real authority, godly authority. It produces obedience and freedom. In other words, God sets you free to be all he's called you to be. He doesn't set you free to do all you want to do. Free to be who he's called you to be, not free to do what you want to do. How do we turn to the wisdom of the righteous? Well, the Bible tells us this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And as I said previously, I believe that's not panic fear, terror fear. It's, it's approach God with reverence and awe. I do know God is my father and my dad. But I personally, personally, it's maybe personal, you have to test this now, but I do get slightly irritated these days. Hey, people talk of daddy God. Uh, now, if that's what you, then fine. But what I'm slightly concerned about is I'm not talking about how much God loves you and you love God. I'm talking about remembering who he is who loves you. Wisdom begins in the, with the fear of the Lord. You need to know that God loves you, but you need to know it's the mighty one that loves you. I would never try and, if you like, sell my dad a fast one because <laughs> I know he loved me, but I also feared him. It was, it's, maybe respect's a better word. The respect of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So how do we turn? Respecting God. And then wisdom of the righteous. The wisdom of the righteous is knowing that God's community is the way to finding God's mind. We have two wrong things with us now. Let me tell you this. Democracy and dictatorship are both from Satan. Dictatorship because it's individual. Democracy because everyone does what's right in their own eyes. We're supposed to be fighting for democracy around the world. It's not a good thing. It's not a good thing at all. 
Wisdom is found in the God community, who God calls together to find his mind. So the important thing is finding the people God has called you to be with. Matthew 16. It's interesting how Jesus describes, you know that word church, I will build my church, you know that verse? Everybody around knew what it was. It's the word ecclesia. In Matthew 16, what they all knew who lived in Israel was that in any city, there were people who were slaves and there were people who were free. And the people who were free had a vote. And they decided, they governed what happened in the city. So when Jesus said, I'll build my ecclesia, he was saying, I will build my free people to govern my city. That's what he was saying. He was not saying he would build church services. I will build my sons and daughters who I've set free. I will build them so that together they bring my rule to the earth. That's what he was saying. Which is why the next verse makes sense. Therefore, I am giving you the keys of the kingdom. What you open, no one can shut. What you shut, no one can open. God has called you Young men, young women, old men, old women. No, nobody wants to be in that category, but there we go. To be free to do what? To rule, but to rule how? By getting his mind on both what he wants done and how he wants it done, and then putting it into practice. That is Jesus building his church. So wisdom is found in that community that's free and ruling. And finally, finally, wisdom is in simplicity. I've said this many times, uh, but that's because it's true. You know how you're supposed to live as a Christian. You just don't do it. And it's, no use, it's not deep. Let me tell you, because it's Jesus' example. I do everything I see my father doing, and I do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Did anybody not understand what I just said? It's not complicated. It's pigging hard. Right? We don't miss it because we don't understand. We miss it because we don't humble ourselves to just walk as Jesus walked. <laughs> Follow the Father, power the Holy Spirit. That's our wisdom because Jesus is our wisdom. I'll finish with a story from South Africa with this. It's a few years ago, I was in a business meeting where I was supposed to be talking about business. And I was trying to explain to these business guys that actually religion is just as much a problem in business as it is in the church or anywhere else. Let me define religion for you. This is the way it must be done. So there's a business religion out there as well. It's what's crippling the West right now. Because they assume this is the way it must be done, we are slaves to credit. Has anybody thought, let's do away with credit? You know, what's the point of the year of Jubilee? God did away with credit. But the thing is, because of the religion of credit, right, <laughs> we're stuffed. The religious spirit, this is the way it must be done. Anyway, so I was trying to explain to these guys, and I finished explaining, and one young man sat on the front row. Uh, if you listen carefully, you'll know where this is going. He happened to be a lawyer. And he said to me, Bernard, I love what you're saying. I get it. I get it. But practically, can you tell me what this means? To just do what you see the Father doing, to just obey Jesus. And I thought, I stood there and I thought, well, I can't, can I? Because if I, if I tell you what to do, I've just ruined the whole thing. I, I, so I said it again. No, you have to find Jesus. You have to find Jesus in the community he's put you with and find his mind, and that's what will happen. Now, I'm not joking when I say this. Five times he asked me the same question. Now, we were just trying to have a competition in the end. Who was the most stubborn? He was going to keep asking that question. I'm going to keep on giving the same answer. So eventually I said to him, Revere, I don't know your heart, but I'm going to just assume it's good. But clearly I can't help you because I haven't got any other answer than the one I've just given you. We need to find what the Father is doing. I had someone in South Africa say to me this time, but you need to know all about business to be able to help businessmen. In other words... So if Jesus wasn't in high finance, he couldn't help high financiers? Is that what you're saying? It's rubbish, isn't it? So we need to find the mind of God. 
Anyway, come right to this last trip. The lawyer who said God had told him to clear his desk and to welcome us into South Africa, provide the way for us, is none other than the same young man who said to me, what does practically this look like? And you know what he's done? Because God told him to, he cleared his desk. Because God told him to, he sold his, uh, all his law uh, clients on to, to other law firms. Because God told him to, he started back. Because God told him to, he's doing what he's doing for us. And I sat there and I said to him, you know you asked me four years ago, however long it was, what does this look like? This is what it looks like. And this is what I'm commending to you. Fathers, turn your hearts to the sons. That's how we raise the disciplined children. And turn from disobedience to the wisdom of the righteous. It's about following Jesus. It's about following Jesus together. It's about truly accessing his grace, which leads to truth. And if you do that, there is a chance, actually, that you will actually take the land that God has promised you. <laughs> Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for all of your children here and the leadership here. And I, I do pray, Lord, that you would take, in a sense, the scramble of the words I brought and bring home what you want to bring here, Lord God, that your grace truly would affirm truth and make it live in your people. Raise up fathers and mothers in the midst here so that, you'd raise, so that sons and daughters would be raised up who become fathers and mothers and turn disobedient people children into righteous children because lord we are believing you for big things changes of nations changes of cultures changes of continents and there's no way that can happen lord god unless you are behind it so we just ask i ask for each one here that we may keep in step with you the mighty one and so enter the promised land slay giants and take our inheritance, for I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.